Hi everyone and welcome to this edition of the Exceptional Advice Show. Welcome back. So Tristan, what are we talking about today? Um, today we're kind of launching a bit of a saga. Saga. I'm going to call it a saga. It's a, it's a big five-parter. Um, so today will be your, your intro into the, the four elements of client engagement. Okay. And uh, so what will the saga entail then? Um, so we're going to cover sort of a high-level brief today. And then what we're going to do is kind of go into each of the four areas after the fact. In a little more detail. Yeah. Okay. So uh, before we delve into it, we should address the visual differences that uh, we may be sprouting for this episode. So no, the set is the same. However, Tristan and I have had a competition over the last few weeks. I think I'm winning, by the way. Um, And that competition was to see who could develop the best facial hair in uh, that period of time. So th- this is the results of the last three weeks. Yep. So I think the previous episode you could see I was starting to sprout a little bit of facial hair. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've cleaned mine up since <laughs> done a bit of a trim. <laughs> yes, so have I. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, first, first time having, having beard in my life, so it's, I'm ticking it off the bucket list. For anyone audio only, I have very little to none facial hair. Yeah. Just so go. for those who are tuning in, so you're in podcast, on the cast, it's uh, a reasonable <laughs> beard versus none. Um, all right. So, what are the four key elements of client engagement? Um, you know, this is something that we've spent a lot of time on um, researching, as well as testing out through practical expression through our own clients, as uh, as well as you know the the end users of for our clients because as I think most of you are aware we typically work with other advisors and um, and seeing what they put into practice so yeah it's a it's a lot of research over a lot of years um, I can I'm not quite at the 50 threshold but I have been practicing you know in client engagement terms for more than 25 years now so that is why there is also some gray in this beard now um, so what are the four key elements then, Tristan? So I don't know what particular order you want to start in, but four key elements we're going to be talking about are pricing pressure, engagement language. Uh, I need to cheat off the slides. <laughs> um, contextual sequencing and relationship status. Jeez, you. I'm not sure I'm giving you a pass mark on that one. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I got him, I got him. Um, all right, so maybe we'll actually bring up the slides so so everyone can see. This just comes from a scorecard system that we use in doing analysis of advice firms. It's also something that we developed internally for the for the work that we do. So you can ignore the scores for the time being. We're not actually going to talk about the metrics that we use because there's a hell of a lot of uh, points and details that actually go into making up the scores that you see. This is just a sample. Bill Brown is not actually one of our clients just in case you didn't figure that out so maybe we'll start out talking about price pressure i think that's probably the you know the the one most closest to the forefront of our conversations to date um so in our last couple of episodes we've talked about you know what are the key elements of advice and we also talked about um, price discovery so price discovery is pretty important and uh, one of the elements we didn't kind of go into a lot of detail with price discovery is how important 
price pressure is to value perception and an effective, you know, means of relationship engagement. So before we jump into that, Tristan, why don't we have a crack at trying to provide people with a, you know, our definitions of what each of these four categories are. So how would you describe price pressure? Um, price pressure is one of the easy ones. Hopefully I get more than a pass on this one. <laughs> um, price pressure is basically tension felt during uh, like price discussions with clients. So where you're, say you're reviewing the fee at the year mark, you know, you've done more work the past couple of months, you want to bump up a recurring, whatever it may be. When you're actually talking to them, are they, you know, not worried, not phased in the slightest, or are they, you know, worried about the the fee? They're kind of pressing back. Are they getting enough value? Is it worth this much? Can you explain how this is worth it? That's kind of the the tension in the, the conversations. So what you're saying is then, if I try and make it a little more practical in terms of the human experience component or the experiential component. So what you're saying is that for different people, there will be a different point at which they experience price tension yeah. in the payment of a good, or, a good or service. Yeah, that can be said for clients or advisors because everyone does stuff for like, you know, whether you're on a yearly fee going month by month, whether the clients are paying a yearly amount by month, it's all, it's all going to work out differently. So if we go back to price discovery, if you haven't, if you haven't checked that ep- that episode out, I'd strongly suggest you do before delving into this. Um, we talked about the fact that people's sensitivity to price will generally speaking follow a normal distribution curve. Bell curve, yep. Right. So, so in other words, you'll have a lot of people kind of fit more in the middle band, right, around a certain price point for a you know for a good or service. Mm-hmm. But we also talked about the fact that how well you articulate and translate value to clients will determine if your bell curve is moved further to the right. So in other words, if you're better at articulating your value, if you're better at contextualizing the value for a specific client, then your clients will experience price tension at a different price point. So in other words, they will experience that at a higher point than someone who isn't translating their value well. Yeah, correct. And isn't putting it into the emotional context of their specific clients at the same time. Yep. So one of the things that I would say is that almost universally when I've talked to professionals that their their own psychology comes into play with how they perceive and execute their, you know, their business models around price. And what I would say, or what I'm trying to say is that really they avoid having price tension in their relationships. So in other words, they're trying to price to a point where they're not feeling any discomfort from their clients. Yeah, they're trying to avoid the hard conversation because it's a hard conversation. Well, it's not just a hard conversation. I mean, we if we go back to an even earlier episode that we did about subconscious versus conscious communication. Mm. So everyone's always communicating at both levels, consciously and yeah. subconsciously. And so they may be avoiding a conscious challenge of the fee. So in other words, mm. oh, that's very, you know, that seems very expensive. Um, but not just that, they're also subconsciously avoiding a subconscious communication of price tension from clients. 
So, yes. you know, the uncomfortableness in the room, the body language, the, mm. you know, the, the pauses, the, the differences in communication, etc. So professionals avoid creating generally tension in the pricing of their, of their services. And I mean, we're here specifically talking about mm. advice as the, the principal mechanism yeah. of value delivery. So what's the problem with avoiding creating price tension? Why is price tension actually something that you should be looking for rather than avoiding? Well, it, it, it plays a lot in, into the value, really. Um, uh, a classic example I can think of is, is a car. You know, you, you go out and you spend 500 bucks on something. You're not going to treat it with too much care. You know, it's very temporary. Spend 500 bucks just as like a, a gap fill until you buy a new car. Or say you go out and buy an $80,000 car. I think a large majority of people are going to treat that with a whole lot more, you know, care and see much more value in it, even just aside from the monetary value. Because, you know, you're paying more, but you're also perceiving more because you paid more. It's not just the, the exchange of, like, money for the car. You've also got what it's going to give you out of it. Yeah, I, l I like what you said there. You're mm. perceiving there's a higher value because you paid more for it. Yeah. So it does change the psychology of your perception. Now, if we're talking about the key areas of advice here, right? So when you're going to see a financial advisor or an accountant who's actually going to help you, you know, develop and grow and make your business sustainable, etc., you actually are investing in one of the most valuable things that you can potentially have. So if you get good advice, it makes all of the difference between getting where you actually want to be yeah. in life or business or not getting there. So does it not make sense then that in order to move forward in that area, that you should actually be investing as much as you can, like to get the best quality that you can? In other words, if there's no price tension or pain in that engagement, then the chance of you taking it seriously enough is significantly diminished. Yeah. Well, I, th I think the, the diminishing point's a big one because not only can you sink a whole lot of money into something for not much more benefit, there's that diminishing return there, right? So when we're not saying, you know, if you're worth 50 mil, go and spend one mil on advice and it'll be way more worth it than spending, you know, 300 grand. There's a, there's varying points where you can kind of throw money at something for very little return. You've got to kind of pick the sweet spot as well. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting because this threshold doesn't necessarily, I mean, the bell curve doesn't necessarily fit depending on, you know, how much money you have, right? Yeah. So you could be someone who has you know, net assets of 50 million, for example, and you could be far lower on the bell curve, so mm -hmm. therefore be far more sensitive on price than someone has, you know, net assets of a million dollars. And so this is also important to, to, to factor. And ideally, our proposition for you all is that you actually want your client to be feeling some tension, some degree of pain, in the payment of your fee. And if you're not, then they are also not being put in the right psychological frame to be able to get the most value out of what you're doing. Because good advice, and 
where we're here talking about exceptional advice, right? So we want to go beyond just the good. Exceptional advice requires, as we've talked about, things like interventional conversations and actually going deeper with clients, getting to the true inputs of, you know, what advice actually means. And that requires commitment and it requires change management and it involves actually being there and going deeper and challenging clients around how they're in their own way and stopping themselves getting to where they actually want to be. And if you're taking a shortcut on this most valuable area of your life, in other words, you're not paying enough for it, then the chance of you actually valuing that service highly enough and taking it seriously enough is significantly diminished. So, yeah, I mean, look, in, in some ways in an ideal world, you would have a different price for all of your clients depending on their propensity to pay and and where their actual price sensitivity comes into play. Of course, that's not realistic either. So what we do when we look at a business is we look at the degree to which they have some price tension in their engagement relationships with clients. And there's a whole lot of metrics we go through to actually figure this out. And of course, as we said, we'll, we'll delve into what some of those metrics might look like in a later conversation. But the key point here is most advisors are avoiding price tension and that's a big mistake. Mm. So what other metrics decline when you have lower price tension? So what's the, what's the kick-on effect of having lower price tension in your client engagement, Tristan? Yeah, so it, I mean, all of these kind of intertwine, right? If you drop the ball on one area, you're kind of dragging the other ones down with it. Um, but for, for price tension in, in particular, um, you're mainly looking at, you know, the, we, we talked about how, you know, how seriously your client's actually going to take what you say, what they're going to get out of the experience, like from a psychological point of view. But then you've also got how they're going to turn that into, you know, word, word of mouth how they're going to pass that on, how valuable it was to them. If it's super valuable, of course they're going to, you know, they're going to refer, they're going to be like, wow, okay. I've, I've got friends this, this will work for as well. I'll tell them. So growth rate. So in other words, you have lower price tension, your business will have a lower, a lower growth rate. Okay, your word of mouth is lower. Your So we have a, a, cal- a mechanism of calculation we call organic referral rate. Okay, and a lot of advisors, and we'll, this will be a whole topic for another five-part episode as well when we get to referral mechanics so advisors kind of look at where you know where they're growing their businesses and 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 how people refer and often they'll be you know they'll mistakenly attribute client referrals to you know referrals from centers of influence you know other professionals maybe joint ventures they have or whatever else (coughs) Now, organic client referrals is a really important measure in a professional services firm. And the way we calculate that in short, and there's a little bit to it when we actually go through it, but it's for every 100 clients that you have, how many actual client, new and client engagements net. So if you lose a client, that would be a reduction. And then if you gain a client, that would be an addition. So how many new clients do you gain every year as a result of purely being a referral from an existing client? Okay, so, you know, if you if you lost two clients and added seven, right, excluding 
clients from all other sources, business acquisition, centers of influence, whatever, then you would have five. So in other words, your organic referral rate for that year would be 5%. Did that make sense? Did I explain that okay, Tristan? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is a really important measure, whether or not you actually want to grow your business, right? Because what it's doing is telling you, it's giving you leading indicators for how the rest of your client engagement is going. And one of the things that we know for sure is when there is greater price tension across a client group, that overall clients are happier, right? There's less complaints. I know this sounds counterintuitive, but it's not when you actually get into the psychology of it. When you're charging people more, they've got price tension. They take it more seriously. They listen to you more. They dig into what the real value is more. And yes, you will have some clients say, say no, because in order to get to price tension, you have to go through the process of post-discovery, which we talked about in our earlier episode. So in other words, that means getting to a sweeter spot where you're charging more and you have some of the people that would have said yes before say no. But overall, your business is now more effective and more profitable. And even more importantly, as we're talking about today, the rest of your clients value you more because there's more price tension across, across the rest of your client group. So one thing we know for sure is that that leads to greater word of mouth. People are valuing you more. It's like the car analogy that you used before, Tristan, right? So do you talk to people more about the, you know, the crappy car that you bought or the one that you spent a reasonable sum of dollars on, you know, buying? You know, you take more pride in it. <laughs> you're yeah. polishing the, you, you know, as you go out to get in it, you know, you're, you're, you're wiping it down, you're doing those things, you're, you're valuing it more, you talk about it more. Okay, so what else, what else does a lower amount of price tension lead to? Well, in simplest terms, it leads to a less profitable business because you've not actually engaged in price discovery, right? There's no price tension or you're avoiding price tension. So therefore, you're not capitalizing on the value for your business. So, and when you have less revenue for the same amount of work, what it, what's the flow on effect of what that means for the business, Tristan? Well, you're less efficient. Yeah. So in, in other words, in you, <laughs> so in other words, you're more stressed. Your your team's more stretched. You you're less able to spend time going deeper with clients. Yeah, doing too much for too little, essentially. Yeah. So price tension is incredibly important, okay? I think that's probably a, a reasonable intro into that one. All right, let's go back to the slides. And So which one are we going to talk about next? Um, let's go anti-clockwise. Let's go to relationship status. That ties in nicely. <laughs> we talked about uh, what order we'd go in before. So, uh, so I'd suggested anti-clockwise and that messed with Tristan's brain. So I see you've adapted very quickly. Yes. All right. <laughs> okay so relationship status um why don't you have a crack at that one as well tristan so so what how would you define what we mean by relationship status so relationship status has a bit of like crossover with price pressure as well so price pressure means the client's value you know they value the advice a little more as a result of it but you've also got the relationship metric as well so they're going to value the relationship a bit more as well as a result of that, as a bit of a cross-in. But sort of in and of itself, you're much more focused on, at least definition-wise, you're much more focused on 
you know, how, how well do you know your clients? What are you actually helping them with? How well do they know you? It's kind of this relationship push and push and pull, you know, you can, you can compare it to like speed dating sort of thing. Um, is a weird direction. I didn't expect to take this analogy. Okay, I was like, um, "All right, where's he going with this one?" <laughs> you know, you you sit down at a at a table with someone. Say you got two minutes. Um, if if all they're doing is talking about themselves, dominating the conversation, not letting you get a word in, it's it's very one sided, and you know there's going to be no connection. You're not really going to feel anything there. But if you know they're kind of taking a little bit of time to get across, you know, what they're passionate about, what they like, and then handing over to you to do the same. There's this natural kind of push and pull. And that makes, you know, makes it much more valuable for both of you. And it's the same with client relationships. Okay. I was wondering how you pull that off. <laughs> Is that all right? That makes sense? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't too bad. <laughs> um, so it kind of reminds me, um, going back uh, quite a few years ago now, we, we ran a national conference called Advisor Edge. And uh, we were trying to help people with the, the idea of prospecting for new clients. So, you know, how to, how to build a relationship um, and then get people across the line, but, you know, not friend, friend zone yourself at the same time. Yeah, right. And so the way we, we did it was to actually run a skit where we had two people on stage pretending to meet at a bar and then go through the different scenarios of how advisors actually try and engage their clients, you know, so they... You know, the date's going well, so then the next thing he does is ask if, you know, she wants to come home and meet his mom, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, th I think it is actually a reasonable, you know, a reasonable metaphor for client engagement. Why? Because that's exploring a new relationship and that's exactly mm. what, you know, what we're talking about here. It's exploring new and existing relationships and getting that mix right. And so what I would do is describe relationship status as being the optimal balance of what we've uncovered are all of the components of what makes up a good and most effective relationship. And, you know, there's a whole lot of, a whole lot of thought process or conventional wisdom around this. You know, I'm a member of a, of a, of a coaches and consultants group on Facebook. And uh, I, I often just sit back and, and watch the conversation and, have a little chuckle to myself. Um, but one of the key areas where questions come up all the time is, you know, should you be friends with your clients? You know, is, is that okay? And then you get this whole dichotomy of opinion. Um, so, so where are you at? What does the relationship look like? And then how we measure that is through a whole range of different measures like mutual vulnerability, like... Uh, do do your clients feel like you speak down to them, right? Do you allow your clients to speak down to you? How have you balanced or how have you struck the right point in the balance between, you know, being connected, being personally engaged and deep with the clients, but also being in a, a position of advisory strength, right? But how much of yourself do you share? Because we know for a fact that you can't be an exceptional advisor if you're also not mutually vulnerable with your clients. So if you're taking the professional demeanor that you don't expose yourself and your own uncertainties, you know, challenges in life, etc., then you will never truly get your clients to open themselves to you either. It's, that's just a process of mutual vulnerability. 
And when you talk about it in that sense, it makes perfect sense, right? So there's a whole lot of metrics we go through to assess this. Um, you know, what's how do you engage with them? Now, one one thing that's particularly interesting is, so if we go to, again, the, the idea of referability, right, as being a key summary measure of you know, how of the state of your client engagement, and it absolutely is. There's a lot of other characteristics, and we'll talk about that in later episodes. But certainly your client engagement and each of the four mechanisms we've described here will determine the rate at which your clients will be willing to refer to you. So what's one of the conventional wisdom points? So let's see if you get this one, Tristan. So a bit of a test test one today. Um What's the conventional wisdom about how to get referrals, right? Just just ask for them. <laughs> right, just ask for them. It's kind of interesting because I hear that all the time. Aren't you asking for them? You know, put it on your email mm. signature. Make sure at every meeting you're asking clients to refer. Now, by the way, does, does that actually produce some outcomes? Sure. Yeah, it does. But is it the it is is it what what we believe is the optimal way to necessarily go about doing it? Very rarely, I'd say. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, in putting together some of this data, we looked at the a whole bunch of like lots and lots of advice firms, and what we wanted to do is work out what are the ones, what are the firms that get the highest referrals actually do. And so we kind of we kind of threw our list, narrowed it down to you know kind of top twenty out of a sample set of hundreds. And what we observed is that almost all of those, so like 90% of that, of those top, you know, the top 5% of firms don't actually ask for referrals. Right? So what I would say is that it's, it's actually whether you ask a client for help or not that actually determines whether you're ticking off one of these kind of relationship circles you want the circle to be complete you actually want there to be a balance between things so if you're a great if you're a good or even great advisor and you're providing that much life benefit and change to your client then the relationship value transaction is actually imbalanced from a psychological point of view in other words you're in the position of of advisory strength but you're creating a deficit of connection with your client because they don't have the chance to actually provide you value back mm. and therefore it puts tension on their own internal perspectives of self-worth in that relationship so what you want to be able to do is to provide them with an outlet to to bring balance back to that to that equation and so one thing we know is simply asking your client for help on a personal level rather than a business level. But I mean, that you can do a great crossover. So things like, hey, could you really help me out and, you know, write me a recommendation on LinkedIn or, you know, write, write, me, a, write me a recommendation on Google Places. It could be as simple as that. But uh, we find that the more personal those requests for assistance are, you know, it could be around... Hey, you know, we're thinking about sending our, our daughter to a different school um, and we know that you've got kids going there. Could you take some time to go through that with us? 
and I'm just giving, I'm just making up examples here, but the more an advisor actually builds that into their relationship with their clients, the more they give their clients a chance to reciprocate value exchange, the deeper connection they feel and the more they will actually refer. Okay? So, look, I just picked on one particular sub-metric of relationship status and we've got a whole stack of them, right? But I wanted to give a, an example of what relationship status means. It, it basically means are you getting the right balance in your relationship with your clients? Is there enough completeness in both circles? Is the right balance between friendship and, um, you know, positioning of strength? All of those things. Okay, mutual vulnerability, the ability to create reciprocal value both ways, etc. Okay. Anything you'd add to that? No, no, I think that's a good summary. Okay, cool. All right, so I think that's a good intro for relationship status. What do we want to go into next? Uh, contextual sequencing. Okay, we're going with contextual sequencing. All right, so so here you go. Have a crack at explaining contextual sequence. This is probably a harder one to explain, right? Yeah, this is kind of the wild card. Um, so contextual sequencing, this is sort of the the journey you take your clients on um, over the time that they're working with you and how you make it match what they're after goal-wise. Does that make sense? Kind of. Kind of. So you're, you're working with clients, you're giving them advice, you're doing some work for them. Beyond the transactional element, what other value are other clients getting out of it? You know, is it is it going to help them build the house they're looking to build? Is it going to help them retire when they want to? What what kind of personal elements is it actually going to help them achieve? And what journey are you taking them on to get there? Okay, I think that's a, a decent crack. As I said, this is a little more challenging yeah, to explain. Um, and I guess this is one of the key developmental areas that I've personally been you know, working on over a long period of time. So, so reasonable job. I'm going to go a few steps up in when I give my kind of overview of contextual sequence. So context is, in my definition, how you perceive and engage and interact with, with, I guess, the world and the environment around you. Okay. So, and context is something that flows like a river. So your perception about anything is made up of all of your previous contextual sequences and experience that you've had over the course of your life. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of flows through the moment of now. So in other words, context is a flowing river. And how you shift your perception will determine you know, where you're at in that, that flow of river and how you perceive what you're passing by as the moment of time. So in other words, the, the banks, you know, that you're looking at directly opposite of you are, is, is now. And then you've got the previous, your previous experiences and how they've framed how you perceive what you're passing right now. Okay. And then, of course, it's always moving forward. So it doesn't stay still. And so what I would say is contextual sequence is about how you, through your relationship engagement, structure that flow of the river for the purpose of this relationship. 
So in other words, are you taking them on a journey so that when they get to certain points, that when they look to either side, they've got the best framework to be able to assess what they're actually looking at? Okay. Another way to describe it would be engagement and engagement is really about psychology as well right so are you taking people on the right staircase right so you're not just you're not throwing them steps that are too big you're not asking them to jump off a cliff you're not asking them to climb a cliff you're taking them through the right steps in the right order to create the optimal engagement where there's mutual value exchange between you Okay, and so we've done a lot of study over time to figure out, well, what are those optimal sequential steps that you need to go through in order to help a client actually make an informed decision and for you to be in a position where the relationship will have the most value between you. How did I go? Yeah, good. Does that make sense? Much more high level than I went, but yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, as I said, that was a slightly more challenging to... To explain, and we've done a hell of a lot of research over, you know, over a very long period of time with lots and lots of firms and tens of thousands of, of end clients to kind of figure out what this looks like. So let's give some examples of some things that are important in client engagement from a contextual sequence point of view. All right, this isn't the be all and end all because, you know, we've really narrowed this down to a fine a fine list that we assess when we work with businesses over time. But let's kind of give some examples of what might need to be in an optimal client engagement sequence. What do you reckon? What can you think of? Um, what immediately comes to mind, and it might, might be a little obvious, is kind of giving people context. Um, so, you know, kind of setting the scene for what you're going to be doing. Um, particularly important with, say, new clients or new projects, something that, you know, has has some elements of the unknown in it. Um, so, you know, for example, you're starting a, uh, a, a mortgage process for someone who's never, you know, taken out money before. Um, might seem very straightforward to you, you know, done it a million times, you're not worried about them getting pre-approved, they fit the parameters, you're giving them, you know, oh yeah, it'll take a few months, you'll hear back from us, we'll do these couple things in the meantime, you don't really need to worry about it. Because to you, they don't. It's simple. They fit the parameters, it's easy. But from from their perspective, you know, they're, they're lacking the context that they actually fit the parameters, that they're actually going to be able to get the loan, they're going to be able to get the house. You know, it, it kind of leads on to this, this mess of question marks in, you know, as you go deeper down, down okay. the sequence. So if I reinterpret what you're saying to be that setting the scene and giving enough context for people so that you're avoiding creating cognitive dissonance in their experience. Yeah. Okay. Backfilling the gaps, essentially. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, in some of the coaching I've been doing with you over the last mm. couple of weeks and we're talking about, okay, well, I think you need to just, with that particular client in that scenario, rather than delving straight to the issue, let's give them a little more mm. context beforehand. So, so one of the things that, you know, I'm, I was working with Tristan on is and using this analogy, right? Because mm. it's yeah, the first time good, I've used one. this analogy, right? Yeah. So you were at a point with a client and you're looking at either side of the bank, they're looking at either side of the bank and you're dealing with what's there, right? Yep. But you're trying to get them to see what you know is there, but they don't have enough context for. 
So what you actually needed to do was take a step back on that river, right? Yep. Before getting them to take a look over and see it to build the framework of perceptional understanding for them to then be able to take a look and go, oh, okay, I, I, I get it. I get where we're at. So cognitive dissonance is an important one and making sure that you actually have a framework for taking your clients on that journey. I'm going to give a few more practical examples of things that um, really should be in, in an optimal contextual sequence. But before I do, I want to give a summary of what it actually takes to make an ideal engagement with a client. It takes being far more direct, right? So this goes back to a previous episode that we've had you know, are you, are you direct enough with your client? So if you haven't checked that one out, I highly recommend that you do. And optimal engagement is about honesty at a relationship and human level. So are you actually being honest about your motivations? Are you being clear about what it is that you're seeking to deliver and what you personally get out of it? I don't mean you get paid. If all you get out of your advice experience with a client is getting paid, then turn this off and stop watching anymore because you've got zero chance of being an exceptional advisor and you should change professions. If this is not fulfilling and rewarding at a purpose-driven level for you, then you can't be an exceptional advisor. And I'm sorry, but you can't be exceptional at anything that you do unless you actually get that fundamental human reward mechanism as a part of the catalyst for you doing it. Okay, that's a whole other topic of conversation. So if you're not translating that to a client, you're not being honest. Okay, you haven't been honest with them about your conscious and subconscious drivers for what this relationship is about. So really contextual sequence at a summary level is about making sure that you've been explicit and direct enough about why you're here, what the value is you're going to bring to the table, or not that you will bring to the table, that you seek to bring to the table. What is your real value? And then what do you expect from people in order to be prepared to give that? So this isn't about someone else. It's not about their value. Contextual sequence requires you being honest enough about you first. And if you don't provide that honesty to someone, then subconsciously the questions remain and still exist and therefore you haven't created the ideal framework for an optimal relationship. Okay, conversely, you also need to draw these things out from clients and mostly they won't know or they won't be able to articulate to you what their conscious and subconscious drivers are. So Tristan, you were talking before about are you translating the value enough in Mm. terms of their goals and objectives? And I would say it goes deeper than that because most clients don't really know or can't articulate yet explicitly what their true drivers are. So they may come to you with a set of goals. You know, we want to retire by X. We want to, we want to pay less tax in the business. I don't know, whatever, but that won't be the deeper aligned conscious subconscious explanation Mm. of what they really want. And so getting to optimal contextual sequence involves you being explicit consciously and subconsciously about the key drivers, but also drawing out over your engagement from clients what their conscious subconscious drivers are and making sure that what was implied, simply something that was in the back of their psyche, 
is now explicit and it's expressed explicitly. Okay. And if you can do these things and you can take a client on that staircase, that contextual staircase, now you've got an optimal engagement. And if you don't, then you have a much weaker engagement. So the chance of them referring, the chance of them staying long-term, the chance of them paying appropriately, the chance of them allowing you to go deep enough to actually create fundamentally transformative outcomes for them, all of those things diminish exponentially when you don't have your contextual sequence in you know, its optimal form. Okay. Did that kind of make sense? Yep. Um, there's a couple of other smaller practical things. I'm just going to give you an example of the couple hundred point checklist that, you know, we look at when we're assessing this. So obviously we're not going to go through all of those even when we get into the, you know, the deeper, the deeper discussion of these things. But things like saying to a client, hey, look, I'm, you know, this is what we do. This is how we're doing it. It's why we're doing it. And we're not trying to do it for everyone. And it's okay if it's not for you. Like just actually saying that to a client creates a much better frame of reference for the relationship. Okay. You want to give them permission not to engage with you, but you also want to let them know that that's not your objective. Okay. It's just, it's ultimately a higher degree of honesty and transparency in your engagement as well. Okay. So what's the last one on the list then? Last one on the list is engagement language. Okay. So have a crack at that one. How would you define what we mean by engagement language? Um, you, you really have to be clear and concise when you're proposing to... No, um, basically, when, when you're talking to clients, when you're getting to the... I'll call it the, the pointy end of things, you know, when, when, you, when you really need to mean what you say, you're not kind of... You can be nervous about it, but you don't want to skirt around the topic, you know, oh, I think this fee's a little expensive, so I'm going to leave it out of the conversation for as long as possible, talk about every other possible thing, you know. When I'm, say, giving advice to a client, I'm going to go, so, I, you know, it's a bit of a dice roll, but maybe you should put some money in property and then, like, I don't know, 10 or 30% in saving. You, you're not clear, you're not concise, your engagement language isn't, it's not at a point where it's actually, you know, conveying the research that's gone into it. You know, you've spent a lot of time doing stuff for this client and you're almost doing yourself a disservice by playing it off as, you know, an, an afternoon of, oh, I reckon this would be okay. You, you're almost mismatching what they're actually receiving and how you're delivering it, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so... I'm going to, rather than delve into a definition first, I'm going to go into maybe an example um, from outside of the scope of, you know, advice. So let's take the idea of a ship's captain, right? Yep. So I'm thinking naval ship rather than starship. So for those of you <laughs> who are into Star Trek or something. Um, but the same, the same principles apply. Um, good old John Picard would score very highly, for example, if you're a Star Trek fan, on uh, engagement language, right? Or definitiveness of language is one way to capture some of what we're trying to talk about. So you're a ship's captain, right? And you're in the heat of, you know, a thousand different variables and you've got to make a call about what your ship's doing in an engagement, right? Will you 
absolutely know for a fact that the choice you're making right now is the right one to make. Can you? No. Can you know that? No. But what happens if you shared your uncertainty with the crew? Oh, it, it creates... Well, it can create a bunch of stuff. Most of it not good. So, in other words, the chance of you surviving an engagement is as much to do about how you communicate the certainty of your action than it is about what the action is itself. Yeah, correct. Right? So if you're uncertain in your communication with your crew, then everything is going to cascade down in terms of efficiency and resolve and lack of direction and timing and all the rest of it, right? Yep. So, you know, whether or not the choice was the correct one isn't the driving force. And so there's an element of that that comes into play with advice. Okay, and it's not about being it's not about being certain either. I mean, a lot of the times you've got to help clients navigate a whole range of variables, both subjective and objective. But how you speak to them about it and how clear you are and how decisive your syntax and the tone of your language and your body language and all of those other things will determine how confident they are in actually making their own choices and moving forward. So if you are less definitive, they will be less definitive about their own choices. And ultimately, my view is that an advisor's role isn't to tell clients what to do, it's to actually help the client find their own answer. But when it's there, be definitive about it. Right? There's no point getting a client to an answer that they never act upon. Okay, that's not exceptional advice. But the reason that advisors are exceptional is because they help clients find their own answer and then take action on it and then resolve the next action and then take action upon that. And that's how you create transformative change with people. Okay, so engagement language is how you communicate, how clear you are, how much you doubt yourself, how, how effective your relationship is. You know, we, have, we all have little language traits that are little viruses that creep into our means of explaining things. And some of those can be self-doubt related. And it's kind of interesting because you could even have gone through a period where you were uncertain about something and during that period, because of that, pick up a set of phraseology that then sticks with you and you continue to use even after you've reached a point where you're not uncertain about that thing anymore, but you're still communicating to other people your uncertainty through the phraseology that you've picked up. Did that make sense at all? Yeah. I can use an example of that, right? So, so a client and a good friend. So by the way, for those of you who wanted an answer on the earlier question they were asking what's the right balance between the two for me personally if i'm going to work with someone then if there's not love between us i'm not interested so there needs to be a degree of connection and there needs to be a degree of love that doesn't mean i'm not going to be in a position to be decisive definitive and have great client engagement language it doesn't mean i'm too close to the equation to actually get them to create change and move forward it doesn't and if it does for you, then that's an internal issue for you to resolve. 
Okay, just wanted to kind of point that one out. So a client and good friend of mine, um, like, and I mean seriously, um, I remember in the one of my first my first meetings with him, and uh, and I'm asking him questions about you know where he's at, trying to draw out again this um, subconscious and conscious explanation of what he really wants what he desires, where he wants to be, so much deeper than just the, you know, pure business metrics. And through this conversation, I've let him lead the direction and, you know, he'd go off on tangents, etc. By the way, those tangents are incredibly valuable as an exceptional advisor because the tangents themselves give you input on what the client's actual answers are for themselves. But that's, again, another topic for, <laughs> that's a, a whole series of podcasts in itself. And during that time, he apologized, I think 12 times I counted before I went, all right, I've got to jump in there. Do you realize that you're apologizing? You know, oh, sorry, I got distracted, or sorry this, or sorry that. Why? You're doing exactly what I've asked you to. It doesn't make sense. And then we went and looked to, you know, a bunch of his client meetings, and yeah, he apologized lots of times. There's no need to apologize. And that simple mechanism of apologizing was creating an effect on the translation of his definitiveness and therefore his client engagement. Okay. And then we have to dig into, well, where did that come from and why is it there? And then help him resolve, you know, resolve that going forward. And that was a bigger part of the, you know, coaching component for him as well. And very transformational, I have to say. So there's an example of that as well. Make sense? Yep. Okay, cool. So all of those four things are really what we believe is the framework for what makes great client engagement. So you've got price pressure, relationship status, contextual sequence, and your engagement language. And obviously there's a whole lot of subcomponents that go into making that up, some of which we've covered and explained to you today. And understanding where you're at on that will determine what your business profitability looks like, what your business growth rate looks like, and more importantly, how much effect you're actually having with your clients and how fulfilled you are in your work and your engagement with them. All of these things come into play and the status of your client engagement feeds into all areas. So very, very important stuff. So hopefully you've taken some great value out of that today. As always, would love to know what you think very much appreciate you uh, making some comments if you're watching this on a platform like youtube please make sure you jump in the comments and like and share ultimately we are doing these episodes for you because we want to share the experience that we've gained over time we believe in exceptional advice and we want to be in a position to help share our depth of understanding and expertise with you so we're not we're not getting subs we're not we're not looking for sponsors we're not looking for clients we're not looking for any of those things we're here to help you so all we ask is if you're interested and you value it please just let us know and please please engage with us and uh, let's help grow what it means to be exceptional in the world of advice thanks very much everyone look forward to seeing you next episode.